friends! Welcome to the Professional Brewers Podcast, hosted by Grunfell Meadery and me, Ricky the Mead Maker. This show is for brewers of all kinds, anyone looking to get into brewing professionally, folks who want to peek behind the scenes at their favorite brewery, or merely the brew curious. Whether you're an old hand in the industry or you're just starting your professional brewing journey, we hope this show helps you become a better, more profitable, happier brewer. On this week's show, I talked to Dan Sartwell from Black Flannel Brewing. We talk about starting up a brew pub in the midst of COVID, switching from self-distribution to working with a distributor, how he comes up with and brews historical styles, and what it's like to break into the industry as a home brewer, and of course, lots of other things. It's a great episode. I think you'll learn a lot. So let's get to the interview with Dan Sartwell. Dan Sartwell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, yeah, I think you've been after me for a, a few months to get on here, so I'm uh, excited to finally uh, make the time to, uh, to talk to you. So we're going to start where I like to start with brewers. Give us your background, your history. Some people come in the industry through a training program. Some people just show up at a brewery and ask for a job. You've worked in a lot of different places, so just give us a background. Yeah, so uh, I currently work at Black Flannel Brewing, um, but I got my start in 2010. Uh, basically, a friend of mine started home brewing, um, told me about it. So uh, I was like, oh, that's cool. It might be as good as uh, my Labatt Blue I've been drinking. Let me try it. And, uh, you know, was blown away by the, uh, you know, the different flavors you could get out of beer. I had no idea brewing beer was a thing. So very next weekend, had my own kit. And then within a year, I was looking for brewing jobs and uh, managed to land one at the, uh, the historic Shed Brewery in Still, Vermont, which uh, has since changed hands a couple of times. It's uh, currently idle time where idle time is. So, um, so yeah, I got my start there as the assistant brewer, um, you know, doing a lot of cellaring tasks, was able to actually brew a couple batches as well. Um, and then uh, they ended up actually uh, being towards the end of their life. They closed down about a year after I started. So I uh, went over to Trap Family Lodge in their, their old little uh, uh, brewery below the bakery um, and started, I learned to brew lagers there, was there for a little over a year um, and then left uh, uh, there, did a, a little short stint over at Rocker. And then from there went to uh, 14th Star to uh, get in on the ground level when they were still in a little uh, garage brewing three and a half uh, barrel batches. So was able to uh, help them get to the, uh, uh, the I'd say they're pretty much a regional brewery now. Um, so got got uh, helped them with that that path, and uh, once they were up and running and going well, uh, decided to change course and uh, start up a brewery with a, a friend of mine, uh, Chris Kessler, here at Black Flannel Brewing, and uh, so started here on the ground level and. Uh, We've built a very sustainable brewery here, and uh, uh, we've also got a distillery and a, a James Beard-nominated restaurant. So, uh, you know, a lot of lot of cool cool things going on here in Essex. So, yeah, that's really really cool. I did not know about two of those breweries in your background. I just <laughs> knew about the rest. So, why a brew pub? There's a lot of different models, and what's your distribution like now? How much are you selling through distribution, and how much are you selling through that brew pub? So the brew pub model. So uh, going back, we've been, we opened in July 2020. So as you know, there was this little uh, sickness going around, starting around then, um, turned into a little bit of a pandemic. So we were doing the planning for this. Uh, Chris started in 2017, 2018. I joined the team in July 2019. 
to start. So basically about a year before, uh, before opening. So at this time, you know, on premise, I mean, that is the way to go. That is the, you know, we, it's all about the location and, and what we could do in this space. So uh, basically our entire model was built to do about 90% on premise uh, by volume, 90% of our beer would be sold on premise and the other 10% to distribution just to get, get a little bit out there to, you know, let people know we're here. Um, COVID happened. Uh, we ended up having to make a lot of investments in uh, extra investments when we had already, you know, started this or almost completed this huge project um, and putting more outdoor spaces, uh, things like that. Um, so we could get more people in to be able to hit even close to the volume numbers we were trying to target. Um, so, you know, started doing distribution uh, right out, out the gate. And basically from then until now, um, about 25 25 percent of our volume uh, goes through distribution and the other 75 percent um, out the door either uh, or sorry uh, either on draft or through package out the door so um, and we are uh, currently in the process of uh, hoping to sign with a we've been doing self-distribution um, and we're we're looking to increase our distribution uh, increase our our volumes that we're doing so we can keep here a little bit fresher we're, um, and we're doing where uh, we're hoping to sign that deal within the next couple of weeks, actually, and hope to get our beer uh, out a little bit wider from where we're at right now. So yeah. super exciting. So two things I want to follow up on. What kind of volumes are you doing right now? And what is the capacity, uh, max capacity at your space? Yeah, so we have a 15 barrel brew house um, and we have uh, six, six fermenters or six uh, 15 barrel fermenters, a couple other small ones. We do have a sour project as well. So a couple tanks over there. Those are more like kind of sit and wait uh, kind of projects. Um, but we've, uh, we're doing currently uh, around 400 to 500 barrels uh, a year for the last uh, couple of years. Um, but our capacity, depending on what styles we're doing, anywhere between uh, 1700 to 2200 barrels. Um, we do a lot of loggers. We've been, I, I hope that out there we're starting to get known for our loggers. Um, but, uh, you know, those take a lot longer. So our, 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 uh, overall capacity is definitely dropped if we're doing a lot more of those. So, uh, but the plan we're right now, I've got a pretty, pretty easy or a good plan to be able to produce uh, a good amount of lagers, uh, a lot of ales and IPAs um, and hit that 1700 barrel mark within the next couple of years. So. Nice. And another thing you mentioned, you're very sustainable as a brewery. Um, how do you define that? Well, so uh, early on in the project, uh, well, actually as overall, uh, uh, my whole, uh, ethos and my whole philosophy on uh, on life you know being on this planet like i want to try to do everything i do uh both personally and professionally in the most sustainable and uh, uh, uh environmentally friendly uh way possible because we only have this one earth and we want to we want to conserve it so um so basically when i was brought on board there were a few uh, uh things that chris and the team had already uh, planned on doing but basically i wanted to try to get as much as possible it, it's i mean brewing is a very energy intensive process so there's there's definitely some things that were out of our reach that we just either couldn't afford or couldn't um uh, couldn't quite quite get to uh, but basically with with what we had for for our uh, uh our budget and what we could do i tried to make it as sustainable as possible and i mean in the long run it's saving money but there is a little bit more upfront cost but uh, we worked with Vermont uh, Efficiency Vermont right out of the gate. Um, and so we've got uh, such things. We have a, our chiller, which is basically one of the one of the two powerhouses of the brewery. Um, it basically keeps our beer uh, cold. Um, I, I was able to get a incredibly efe efficient chiller that's uh, 
Um, I could go into all the exact details on this, but we don't want to get too, too technical. Uh, but basically, it has a, uh, uh, a couple extra pieces uh, inside where it's able to uh, create more cooling uh, with less power, basically. So, um, so, and we also, instead of using um, different condensers on each of it, we have three walk-in coolers, instead of using different condensers on each of those, which one is, uh, you know, you have to run extra power. There's lots of things like that. You have uh, uh, each condenser that you run, you have the risk of refrigerant leaks, which are hugely uh, uh, damaging to the atmosphere. Um, so we basically just have the one chiller that I run glycol through the, uh, through the system and we can keep all of our uh, cold boxes cold. There's a little risk of redundancy there. Like if one, if one thing fails, all our cooling goes down, but we have a couple uh, we've, we've learned to uh, figure out a few ways to uh, uh, mitigate that. So um, that's uh, just one, one portion of it. Um, we are using natural gas, um, kind of couldn't get away from it with the, um, with the, with our budget, basically, we could have gone with a, a couple of other things to create steam, um, but just weren't really feasible for us with our uh, once space, but also uh, the budget that we had to work with. So eventually it'd be nice to, to get like a, uh, uh, some other steam generation using like uh, wood pellets or something like that. But, um, but we are using natural gas, which I don't love, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, and in the site that we're on, it's uh, solar panels um, on all, all of the, uh, it's in the Essex experience is where we're at in Essex, Vermont. And it's got, uh, yeah, solar panels everywhere. We, uh, as a company ourselves can't technically claim uh, that we're solar powered, uh, but we, the, uh, our landlord has uh, that and we, they buy credit. So basically we're, we're, uh, we're uh, benefiting off of that uh, solar power generation, so. Um, among a bunch of other things, we could go into the sustainability stuff for for hours, probably on a, our own podcast or a separate podcast. But yeah, no, that's super cool. When we were setting up our chilling unit, we considered using those uh, cool box setups, so it's all in line. And it was that our walk in is on the other end of the building, and we figured out that the uh, the cost to run the lines was going to be I can't even remember like tens of thousands of dollars. But I've always loved that setup, and you're such a tight space there. I'm I'm really glad to hear that you installed that. Yeah, and we did. I mean, we do actually have a, quite a large space with the distillery, barrel room, brewery, restaurant. But we didn't have to go too much further to run the lines because we already had to run them over to the distillery. So it was a quick little uh, reroute over there. Um, and then speaking of the lines, those are all cool fit, which are uh, the most energy efficient. They are uh, all insulated uh, before they before you install them, and they have very, very little, uh, very little uh, cooling loss uh, going through the system. So yep. Kelly and I actually both got certified as cool fit pipe installers. Nice. So we started up 10 years ago, we got a little more cards up on the wall. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's super cool. And talk a little bit about the restaurant integration. Uh, congratulations on the James Beard nomination, by the way. Thank um, you. Yeah, that, yeah. Not, that wasn't me at all, for sure. That was uh, our chef and his team. But, um, but yeah, the the restaurant, um, you know, we we weren't sure exactly how we wanted to do it, neither uh, uh, Chris or I or, or the other parts of the team that were kind of starting up the operation. Uh, none of us are from the restaurant industry, so kind of leaning on uh, our uh, uh, chef that was hired to kind of uh, educate us in that, in that respect. And, uh, you know, we've done things from, we started a little bit uh, uh, more unique menu items, a lot of different things, but, um, you know, food costs are, are quite high and have been getting higher. So we've kind of, we've got a good mix on our menu of some uh, higher uh, uh, elevated items 
um, and then other so, uh, pub food as well, but the pub food that we do very well as well. So, um, and we also integrate beer and food pairing uh, with all the entrees that we do as well as some of the other dishes, but mainly all the entrees um, have a beer and food pairing right on the menu. So when you're deciding on what you wanna eat, you can see, okay, what pairs well with this and decide to get that for your beer to have with your meal as well. So, um, yeah. That's a great model. I think I've only seen that one other place other than at Black Flannel. <laughs> and, you know, and the hope is people listening to this, some people have started a brewery already. Some people are thinking about going into it. So for your income mix, if you can talk about it, we talked about the distro versus on-prem. Um, what's your food distilling? And do you teach classes also? We do, actually. There's a class going on the other side of the wall right now through uh, Vermont, uh, Vermont Technical College for our distilling, so... Oh, I, yeah, I saw that come across my feed. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what's what's your income mix right now and, you know, sort of staffing mix also? I know restaurants always will have the highest staff because of servers, but um, how's that sort of break out? I'm actually not 100%. Uh, so the distillery is a, technically a separate company. Um, so I don't see that on the kind of the pie chart of uh, our normal, our normal uh, mix. Um, so I can't really comment on that, but for the, I think for the brewery versus the restaurant right now it's kind of hard to give it a, we kind of separate a little bit um interestingly too but i think it's around 70 percent restaurant revenue and 30 percent um beer revenue i don't know if that's including oh i don't know if that's including uh distribution or not yeah so you guys made the decision to self-distribute and that's you know, you were in the midst of COVID, everything was weird, but what was that decision like? How did you make the decision and how are you deciding now that it's the right time to go with a distributor? Um, so basically when we first started, um, you know, we had as a brew pub with, a you know, with our volumes that we we're producing and how much we were expecting to be able to serve through, um, through the, the pub itself, um, we kind of had to to look at what, I mean, the biggest thing when, when running a, a brewery is quality, quality, quality. I mean, if you don't have quality liquid that you're producing, you don't have beer that people are really going to enjoy and, and come to ex know what to expect when they come to your, your establishment, then, um, you know, you're in the long run, you just can't, can't survive. So, I mean, it's a big focus on quality. And like, uh, so when I think about volumes of beer produced, like, I don't want to overproduce uh, something that's not going to, not going to sell and end up going bad eventually. Um, you know, we want to try to sell through everything at a pretty, pretty quick rate. So um, with the volumes and the types of beer that we're doing, uh, we've been, uh, we've been doing pretty well as far as keeping the, the quality uh, high. Um, and sort of going back to why we started with self-distribution, um, we wanted to make sure we had an outlet for, for if we did, you know, we were producing 15 barrels, we didn't know how much we'd be able to sell through the, through the tap room. We wanted to make sure that we were selling a portion of it to the tap room. And if we needed to sell some to keep it fresh um, and get it out the door, we could go through distribution. So that was the main thing, making sure we had an outlet. Um, but there's a lot more to distribution than just sending it out the door. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, ins and outs with, with managing accounts, with make, creating relationships with, with each of your accounts, uh, making sure that your accounts are, are happy, have the beer that they're ordering, that you have the beer in stock that you're saying you do. There's, you know, making sure there's a lot of moving parts. Um, so um, we were able to handle that with a ba uh, basically two employees 
um, to be able to uh, get out on the road and, and uh, make sales. We and we're right now we're about seventy five accounts uh, that we manage, um, which is not huge, but not small necessarily. That's that's a good number for self distribution. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. For sure, and I'm a, I'm a master of spreadsheets, so I've got you know tracking everything that we that we put out the door and making sure that uh, you know as far as if anything does go wrong, we're able to trace down exactly to the to the the four pack if something uh, you know uh, something's wrong with it, we know exactly where it is and 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 how to get it quickly so it doesn't get into the consumer's hand. Nothing safety wise, I mean, just if we don't like the quality, basically. Um, although safety wise too, we have that traceability. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's it's been it's basically getting to the point where we either need to invest a lot in our distribution network uh, with getting cold uh, cold trucks, with getting uh, hiring more staff, um, or um, to sell the distribution uh, network that we've built uh, to another distributor to take over and uh, and run in the future. So um, we're kind of reached that point. Uh, within the last couple months, three months or so, and kind of been working out uh, deals and trying to, uh, yeah, trying to sign with a distributor here soon. And, uh, and t- that'll be off our plate. We can focus on other things. <laughs> that was going to be my question is how, how do you know when it's the right time? And it sort of sounds like it's when you have to make that investment decision. Well, and, part of it, yeah, part but, of it for yeah. us was for sure. I think uh, it's all going to be dependent on the individual situation. There's lots of like, there's lots of moving parts. So some of those parts might move, might be greased well and might move well for you and others may not. So it all depends on, yeah, what your, what your capabilities are, what you have for staffing, how, how much you can put into it, how much capital you have to be able to invest. There's lots of options there. We were very close to just you know, investing in a uh, more distribution and taking on other other uh, uh, breweries or cideries or meaderies, and um, but we decided that we want to focus on the beer and what we're producing and the and the spirits and and the food and focus on that um, and let somebody let the professionals deal with the, uh, the the distribution of it. So no, that's that's a great way to make the decision. And again, it's you know like we're on the Canadian border to get to accounts from here. It was like a three and a half hour drive. Yeah. Having a distributor that's centrally located, or if your brewery were centrally located, it might make more logistical sense for you. All yeah, those, sure. all those idiosyncratic things about your specific operation. Yeah. So with your beers, I I know you love your lagers, um, <laughs> and what's what number of brands are you know, individual SKUs are you producing regularly? Like what's your mix of, do you have a core set? Are they always changing? Yeah. So we do have a core set. So uh disco montage IPA. So it's a new England IPA about six and a half percent. That one is kind of our, that's our leader for sure. I mean, we sell 25%, actually it's down to 23% by volume right now uh, for this You year. and your spreadsheet stand. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's across all, uh, that's draft cans, distro, everything about 23% by volume, um, which, but we only really do that one IPA. We do a couple other IPAs here and there that we, we put in there, but that means that, you know, 75 to 78% of our, our mix, our volume is other stuff, which is lagers, historical styles, um, porters, stouts, um, all, you know, all sorts of different things. We love uh, really digging into uh, historical styles and trying to do them well. Um, and not only historical styles, but also just other uh, regional styles, you know, uh, German beers, uh, Czech beers, uh, English beers, Belgian beers. Um, so we've got, you know, that's 
I liked, I like seeing that number and seeing that we're doing about 75% of stuff that isn't IPA when IPA is still dominating the market for sure. We've seen, I know across the, the US market and uh, um, not so much in Vermont, but a little bit in Vermont, um, we have been seeing uh, the rise of, of Pilsner and, uh, and Golden Ales and things like that, but not, it has not even come close to, to taking uh, IPA off the, off the seat yet. So, um, but yeah, we, that's basically our mix, our, our, our core that we are, are going to be launching with. And we've basically been doing regularly for the last three years, that Disco Montage IPA. Then we have our German Pilsner. So it's a North German Pilsner, a little more uh, bitterness, firm bitterness to it. And then uh, really nice floral nose. And then we actually do a year round Martzen, which uh, you might know that more as uh, an Oktoberfest. Um, but we call it a Martzen or Märzen um, is the correct German pronunciation. Um, and we do that year round and it sells great year round. It's a, you know, amber lager that just uh, people really, uh, you know, a lot of people wait for Oktoberfest season to get their uh, Martzen and we let people have it anytime they want. So um, it's, it's actually worked out better than I uh, had expected to, because I've always wanted to do, do a year round Martzen and uh, was super stoked that, uh, that Chris was on board with that as well. So, um, so it's basically our three core and then we're, we do what we've done probably at least 120 different beers uh, since we opened. I mean, at being a brew pub model, we're able to do, I mean, I've got a 15 barrel brew house, but we can do seven barrel batches. We can do split work. So we can do two different batches out of the same work stream. Um, we can do uh, uh, 10 barrel batches easily enough and put it into a 15 barrel tank. And we can also, the smallest batch I did was a three and a half barrel batch of a 3% beer. Uh, which it barely, I mean, the, the mash bed was probably an inch and a half tall uh, in that 15 barrel, but it worked. It worked pretty well. That was our uh, Pivogrodziska called Smoke, um, which is a, uh, a Polish style, uh, which is made with 100% oak smoked wheat malt. And uh, one of my favorite beers we ever made, we sold a pint a week. <laughs> I was going to ask uh, my, my last sales guy, um, one of his things he would refer to is the dead zone and the dead zone goes from 0.5% alcohol to 3.8% alcohol. Yeah, and yeah. Oh my God. I, I'm sorry. Do you still have some? It sounds like you're moving through it really slowly. Well, I drank a lot of it. So. Yeah. I, we used to have a, a 2.8 on draft for, you know, and end of, end of shift. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to joke. sounds like you made hundreds of beers in two years. Okay. You have, <laughs> Yeah, I think, um, that, I mean, I haven't yeah. looked at the exact number. It might be a little shy of, I just realized, actually, I could look at the uh, cells on my spreadsheet and see how many. <laughs> um, but I think it's probably closer to 80 different different products we've done. That's, I mean, that's the biggest thing I miss about having a brew pub operation is, yeah. you know, we still all, I took up home brewing again, just because I missed that thing. I, <laughs> my smallest batch is, you know, 15 barrels and yeah, yeah. you got it got to commit to a lot of people wanting a weird mead uh, right. if, you, if you're going that big that's the thing too because there's so much to experiment with and try out that just no one knows about there's so yeah. many different styles of beer and and meat and, and fermented beverage in general there's yeah. so many different things you can do i mean the it's, it's limitless out there so but people need to buy it Yes. And yeah, I did. I did just get a hundred barrel, uh, sorry, a hundred gallon uh, fermenter for, they can only do still products, but I'm going to be doing also some historical styles coming up soon. And I want to nice. hear about your historical styles and where are you getting your recipes? Um, who are you working with and what kind of stuff have you made? 
Um, yeah, so actually, so Chris uh, Kessler, who's the uh, uh, founder um, uh, and owner here, he was a home brewer, um, and that's where Disco Montage came from. That was how I first kind of met him. Was I was at, he was uh, in a competition where I was able to uh, brew that beer on a production scale for him the first time um, at uh, at Fourteenth Star as part of the Make the Cut competition. Uh, but basically, he is very entrenched in the homebrew um, culture and and you know knows a lot of people um, in the homebrewing community, uh, which is a great place to try out crazy and interesting styles that mm-hmm. you uh, you know you you don't need to worry about selling. Um, so a lot of times when we're working on a new historical style, um, we'll kind of reach out to uh, the community, the homebrewing community, and like. Or if it's someone who's maybe won a competition with this specific style or done uh, something like that. So like the Pivo Grujiska, like I was talking about, um, we collaborated with a home brewer on that. And he had actually traveled to Poland, uh, submitted his beer in a competition um, and ended up, I think, taking third place maybe uh, with it. So we use that recipe. um, And I've got a lot of experience with uh, because of the Make the Cut homebrew competition with scaling uh, five gallon, even actually, I think the smallest I've done is a two gallon batch that won a homebrew competition one time and scaling that up to, uh, at that time I was doing 30 barrels at a time, um, but scaling it up to a production system basically. So, um, I do have a lot of experience with that. I've built a lot of tools over the years to be able to help with that. Uh, but some of it is still intuitive. You have to kind of, you know, taste the beer and, and figuring out what, what with the system we're using, how to recreate those flavors. So, um, so that's one way we've done it in the past. Other ways, uh, it's just, you know, trying something, drinking something, I want to recreate this and then just doing a little research online, seeing, okay, what, what um, should be the ingredients in this beer. And a lot of times I'll find that sometimes they're really accurate, sometimes really off the mark and people are just, there's a lot of bullshit out there. So, Um, but basically, yeah, just trying to, trying to recreate it from scratch, you know, with a, with our own recipe, uh, which sometimes we've hit the mark really well on. And other times it's been like, well, maybe we'll call this something different. Uh, <laughs> oh, but, I, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we've done, we haven't done too many English beers. The main, the English beers we've done are mainly the high ABV stuff. So we've done like, uh, uh, we actually were about to release, um, just barely ordered the labels today. Uh, we have our Muravoir, uh barley wine, which is, we sell in a 250 milliliter bottle. It's a 11% barley wine, I believe. Um, and that was not barrel aged. We took a portion of that and put it into a Brett barrel. So it's been aged on a Britannomyces, uh, uh, I don't want to say infected, but a barrel that has a, a Britannomyces culture um, added to it. Um, what's the word? How come I can't think? Uh, oh, inoculated. Inoculated. Um, thank you. Inoculated. Yeah, I was just, I, I'm going to report you to Herbert Thrush. <laughs> Every time you talk about a sour bacteria or a souring yeast, you just use the word infected compulsively. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't do. I, I, uh, yeah, inoculated. Thank you. Um, so inoculated with Brett, and uh, we aged it for over two years, um, and we're just barely releasing. We brewed this batch in 2020. We're releasing it uh, for our um, anniversary, uh, or our three-year anniversary we're coming up to, um, and it's called Elixir of Arda. And uh, we linked up with a company uh, that, or not a company, uh, an artist that makes Tolkien-style maps. Um, and made a, we found a Vermont one, and she was she allowed us to uh, use the art. Um, I I'm blanking on her name right now. It's on the label itself, but um, actually, I'll I'll, dr- I'll drop it in the show notes. All right, perfect. Yeah. Um, but 
Yeah, I'm super excited about that one. I mean, it's a, it's really a very, I would, I like to think it's very traditional for what a barley wine would have been like in that, in that time period, you know, back in the uh, 17 and 1800s, like it would have been, and I don't quote me on the, on the years that the barley wine would have been uh, famous, but, <laughs> but, that, but most beers were infected at the time with, with something like bread. Um, or wild yeast. So I was going to ask, what is your final gravity on that? Because I use, so I'm all polyculture here because I just use the wild yeast that comes with my honey. But back in my beer brewing days, you know, you knew more or less based on your strain where it was going to end up. But Brett's a wild card. So where'd you end yeah. up on that barley wine? Yeah, it actually, I think it really, the Brett was not used to that high of an ABV. So we didn't see much of a drop initially. We went in around nine degrees Play-Doh. Um, and it finished around, I think, 7.8. It wasn't crazy. So okay. it, that's why we left it in the barrel so long, because we were expecting it to to do a little bit more, a little quicker. Um, but I think the specific Brett strain, which I can't remember exactly which one it was. We had had something else in the barrel first that had had the bread on it, which did really well with. And then we we uh, topped or uh, emptied the barrel and put the, the barley wine in it. Um, I, but yeah, it didn't it did not drop nearly as much as we were expecting. Um so it, it, but over, it did develop these really, really nice, uh, kind of fruit characters and some, just a touch of that, like kind of funkiness, but not, not too much at all. And like, it's still really, uh, like if I would say if I drank that, not knowing it was a Brett beer, I probably wouldn't say, uh, say Brett. I mean, it's still pretty chewy, still got a lot of body to it. So. Yeah. And I think you made a really good choice, uh, with that decision to leave it that long i had a batch not in barrel but still in tank um with that polyculture and it hmm. sat at 10 30 which is right around your 7.5 play-doh and sat there took a gravity reading at some point every like five days and then yeah. one day i kid you not i come in on a monday and it was 10.02 it was zero play-doh <laughs> it had just woken i thought my assistant brewer had moved a new product like moved that out of the tank and moved a new product in yeah and it just it just finally woke up after I think it was two and a half months wow. and it was done. Um, yeah. Yep. So that's, that's the thing about wild strains. You, yeah. uh, give them time. Yep. For sure. Uh, I'm so excited to hear about that. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about before I let you go is a lot of people that come out of the homebrew world that have that model where they've had, you know, they brewed 85 beers and they want to bring them all to market. And <laughs> one of the things I say when I consult with people is I don't care how many awards you've won. Can you brew consistently? and you are the king of consistency like that is that is what you are known for in the state of vermont um you can knock out the same batch and you can almost blind taste and you're always moving it and nudging it but it's so intentional and then getting to play on the other side it's got to be a lot of fun um I tend to work with people who are coming out of the homebrew world. Uh, you know, if you have a Siebel degree, you don't usually call Ricky the mean maker. But um, <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who wants to go pro? Um, and both sides of the advice, like how do you get in there? You know, you showed up somewhere. I've, I've been a home brewer, um, but also not falling into those traps necessarily of my IPA won, you know, three years in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my advice for like specifically a home brewer that wants to get into the business, not a money guy who wants to get into the business, which it's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. Oh boy. Is it <laughs> money guy or girl or, or, uh, but it is for a home brewer, you, 
there's a lot of work <laughs> it is a very it is very very different um it's it's not all about the the fun and the excitement of of brewing the beer that is one tiny little aspect of the entire uh the entire business for sure so um i think if i had to give uh one piece of advice to a home brewer would be go work in a brewery for a little while just you know, go get a brewing job. If you, if you can do it part-time, if you get it, you know, you have to have still support your yourself and your family and you want to just like go get a part-time job, washing kegs, cleaning tanks, whatever it is, um, just to get a taste of it. See if it's something that, you know, you'd really want to do because it is uh, super rewarding, you know, and it, even on the hardest day, you're still at the end of the day, you're like, you know what, I'm making beer. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, it's not anything that's, so high stress that you're, you know, we're not saving babies here. You know, at the if something goes wrong, it's just beer. Um, but it doesn't. If it's a business you're trying to run, you're going to be able to uh, make a profit, turn a profit, and make a high quality product at the same time. So um, it's uh, yeah, it's not for everybody, but it is. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. Yeah. And that's another important distinction is starting a brewery, whether you're a money person or not, um, <laughs> starting a brewery versus being a brewer. I've known, I mean, my my assistant brewer for the last five years, he loves that role. He's He runs the brew house operations, would never want to own one. That, you know, making sure that the mead that we make pays everyone's paychecks. He wants to make the mead. Yeah. And have someone else worry about the paychecks. Right. Yeah. And that's another really important distinction. If you're thinking of going pro, you know, I went pro by founding a company with my partner, but a lot of people I'd say, you know, go off, get that, that brewing job and clean the kegs. Yeah. We're, we're, we're glorified janitors. Right. I mean, that's going to be the bulk of it. You, if you can clean kegs, you can do most all the rest of the, (laughs) all all the rest of the tasks. Well, I mean, you got to, that's not true, necessarily true, but as far as like how uh, how time consuming and strenuous that job is, that's pretty much as far as the physical labor aspect of it. But um, but yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it's funny because everybody does think it's a glorious job, and it is. Uh, it's it's a manufacturing, you know, it's a manufacturing job at the end of the day. Um, a little bit of art mixed in there too, though, which is nice. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, definitely if you're thinking about getting into it, just go get a job first for a little while, try it out, see if, see if it's something you want to do. And if you do, then great, go for it. Well, Dan, thank you so much. I couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Ricky. It was great catching up with you. It's been too long. We got to get together for a nice glass of mead sometime or a pint of beer. We'll do both. See you soon, Dan. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you again, Dan Sartwell from Black Flannel Brewing. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to professionalbrewers.com for more amazing content to help you on your professional brewing journey. And for exclusive content, as well as the opportunity to ask questions of upcoming guests, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash professional brewers podcast. Your support makes this show possible. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.